Welcome to another life-changing message from Pastor Vernell J.R. Samuel of Hungry for God Church. For more information, please visit our website, www.h4gchurch.com. You don't really know something unless you go into extremes. Too many, see, the reason why churches are so ineffective is because so many of Christians just play it safe. You see why Paul was such a revolutionary? Because when he wasn't serving Christ, he was extreme. He went all the way to the extent where he was, he was killing Christians for, this, for, this, for the religion that he claimed was the way. So when he had an encounter with Jesus face to face and he realized that what he was doing was wrong, when the light turned on in him and he changed, when God changed his life, he was transformed. Guess what? That same energy, that same passion that he had, he began to just use that for Jesus. That's why you will see it's like the hardened criminal, those who get saved, guess what? They just get on fire for God. They go hard for God. Why? Because that's what they were doing before Christ. That's why God says, I don't, I want you to be hot or cold. I don't want you to be lukewarm. I can't do nothing with you if you're passive. I can't do nothing for you if you're, if you're in the gray area. If you, see, if you're going to sin, sin all the way. That's what he's saying. <laughs> that sounds funny, right, to hear a pastor say that. If you're going to sin, go hard with it. Don't play both sides. Don't play both sides. You see, this is why I feel like in America, God has to allow persecution to come one way or the other. Because we're so comfortable. We're so cozy. We get to worship loudly and proudly. We get to come to church whenever we want to. But then nations where they don't have that freedom, where if people know if they identify with Christ, then they might be killed walking home. You guess what? If that person leaves church and goes and gets killed, that person knows where they're going. Because to even serve God in the midst of such great persecution means that I mean it. I have to go hard. I'm afraid so many Christians right here in this country, they don't even know if they're saved or not. I feel like you don't understand the extreme. You don't understand anything unless you go hard with it. That's why I love the grace teaching because when grace, when you hear about grace, it not only, it not only gives you the power to say no to sin, but it also says if you sin, God won't be mad at you. So you know what that means? For a person that really wanted to sin, Oh, I, I can sin and, and God won't do nothing to me? Yeah. Okay. The, 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 people say when people are afraid to preach grace because they think that grace is going to give people a license to sin. So some preachers won't preach it. But what it does is 
it removes the, 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 the have-tos. And it allows you to live from a place of want to. What do you really want? So there are a lot of Christians who really don't want to live for God, but because they feel like they have to or they're going to go to hell, they force themselves to stay in church. But once they hear the grace message, if, you, if after you hear grace, you want to go out and sin, so guess what? That's what you really wanted. It was already there. Grace didn't give you the license to sin. You don't need a license to sin. You don't need a license to do it. But what it did was it just caused, it exposed the desires of your heart that were suppressed out of fear. So again, that's why it's like there are some people who are just in the streets, in the world, they're going hard for God. But once they said yes to God, that's it. Because I was in there. I know what that life was like. I went there. I feel like some Christians need to just be given the chance. Go on, do what you want to do. And see if this is what you really want. I'm telling you. Because that's how we get rid of the hypocrisy. That's how we get rid of the hypocrisy. You don't got to sneak to sin. If you're going to sin, sin. <laughs> get it over with. <laughs> I don't know if y'all can handle this. That's what the prodigal son did. <laughs> the father let him go. If this is what you want, son, go. I'm going to get it. Go. Take your inheritance. Take your money. Spend it. Do whatever you want with it. But what I love about that moment was this. And when we read this story, pay attention to the, to the language. The Bible, although he took his inheritance and left the father's house, he still was called a son. He never stopped being a son. Now, if you understand the culture of that story, when a, when, for the son to ask for his inheritance, it was literally him telling the father, you're dead to me. Because the only way you can get your inheritance is if somebody dies. So when the son said, Father, I want my inheritance now. No one asks for the inheritance now. You write a will and you have an inheritance and that is released after death. So when the son asked for the inheritance and the father released him, it was also saying, son, if you get your inheritance, you are no longer technically my son. You took your inheritance. I'm dead to you. That's why he said to himself, if I go back as a servant, I know my father will let me back in. But he knew within himself he couldn't come back as a son because he took the inheritance. <laughs> so this is why the magnitude of that story is so profound that when he came back home, ready to just come as a servant, figuring out that he lost his identity. The father then comes and runs to him and embraces him and says, no, you're still my son. Woo. You are still my son. 
You never stop being my son. Although technically, he should have been treated as less than a son. Come on, church. And that's a story about us. When Adam sinned and we inherited the sinful nature of Adam, technically, God could have abandoned us. God could have allowed us all to be given over to our own reprobate minds. God could have allowed us to be given over to the very things we think we want. And we could have been destroyed and murdered and killed in that state. But by the love of God, by the mercies of God, our sins did not consume us. By the mercies of God, our own wayward thinking, our backsliddenness did not destroy us. God found a way to cause us to come back home. And that is why we're here today. That's why you're here. And there's a people in this world right now who don't know how loved they are by God. Now watch this. If the son did not know the goodness of his father, if he didn't think his father was merciful, he would not have went back. He knew something about the father's nature. That <laughs> if I come back as a servant, I know he'll still take me. He knew that he was still good somewhere, somehow. That's why people need to know how good God is. That's why religion has done a terrible disservice by preaching about the anger and the wrath of God. When Jesus preached about the Father, he said, I've come to show you the Father. When Jesus came to show us the Father, this was his purpose, was to give you a perfect version a perfect view of God that you should never forget it wasn't just about him dying for our sins it was about him showing us the father that's what Jesus said he came to do I came to show you what God is really like are you getting this that's what Jesus came to do he healed the sick to show you what the father is like If Jesus was healing the sick, that means the Father couldn't be making people sick at the same time. Because <laughs> people say, say, oh, God made me sick to teach me something. God put this sickness or put this plague on me. Or God gave me this thorn in my flesh to humble me. You ain't that deep. You ain't getting third heaven revelations like Paul. Then God's going to give you that thorn for what? I got this thorn in my flesh, I think. <laughs> and guess what? That wasn't even a sickness. That was man's interpretation of it, trying to figure out. You see, sometimes our best explanations are our, is our worst answers. Because man doesn't, we don't know something, we try to create an answer for something we don't really know. But when you look closer in the scripture, Paul said, God gave me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. A messenger of Satan. A messenger is a person. There was somebody who just kept annoying him. And kept antagonizing him. That was his thorn in the flesh. We have another phrase, a pain in my behind. That's what he was saying. 
It wasn't a sickness. <laughs> but Jesus, everything Jesus did, he said, I'm doing it to show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, God needed a body. God put himself in his son. He, he sent his son to the earth to show us what he's really like because that was what humanity was missing more than anything else. To end the world's problems, they needed a revelation of who he is. You don't think that's the answer, but that is the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now watch this. As we in worship, the father said to me, he said, love is the energy of my presence. Love is the energy of my presence. What moves God to come is his love. What motivates and compels him to show up on our behalf is his love. What, what compels him to respond to your prayers is his love. God does not have to do anything. But he chooses to because of his love. Love is the energy of his presence. When you see, this is why when you understand what worship is, when you're worshiping God and you, you're praising him and you're seeking him, he responds to us, not because he has to, but because he wants to. You see, love is not need. Love is not need. God doesn't need to do anything. But whatever he chooses to do is because he wants to. And he wants to because he loves to. Say that with me. Say that with me. Love is not need. Whenever you think somebody needs to do something for you, it becomes a problem. <laughs> Marriages end because one partner or the other or both thinks that one person should be doing something that they're not doing. And then we believe that because they're not doing what I need them to do for me, they don't love me. All right? God is love, and love does not need anything to love. We learned that in the four levels of teach of love, right? The eros love and the agape love were the two we, we talked about the most. You remember that? Eros love is I love you with strings attached. I love you if you do this for me. I love you if you give me this. You see, there's a, there's a book out called The Five Love Languages. And it's a great book. It helped save my marriage at one point. Because <laughs> I didn't understand something with Shanique. And, 
And I read that book, and I said, oh, that's your love language. Right. It's a great book. If you're married or about thinking about getting married, I, I suggest you all read that book. It's a phenomenal book. But I was, I was thinking about that book. Um, it talks about that this, the five languages of love is um, uh, gifts, acts of, of service, words of affirmation, personal touch, and uh, was one more thing, quality time. And that if, if you understand those five things, um, each of us have a preference. Each of us have a preference that we, we communicate love in one of those areas the most. The most. So we want to be loved in all those ways, but one of those things are dominant. And it's not only the way that we want to be loved, but it's also the way we give love or communicate love. And so one of the things I learned was that uh, one of my, um, my, my dominant expressions of love was acts of service. I communicated love by what I did for you, what I do. And so when, she, when, I, when Shanique and I began to, to, to um, butt heads, I would talk about everything I'm doing for you, why you don't feel loved, why you don't feel special. I'll go over and beyond. I'll do anything for you. Until I learned that her dominant love language was not acts of service, but gifts. <laughs> go figure. And when we did the test, because there's a, there's a five love language test, when we did the test, gifts was at the lowest on my end. I'm not a gift giver. I'm not really big on gifts, or I wasn't big on it. Was, right? <laughs> I wasn't big on it. I didn't really care to receive it. It didn't move me as much. I appreciated it, but it wasn't something that I really wanted. And she will always get me gifts, and that was her highest way of showing love. So I'm like, all right, thanks. That's cool. And then on the other end, the way she wanted to be showered with gifts, I, I would think about it as, this is just materialistic. What do you need gifts for? All right, I got you a gift. But I, didn't, I wasn't even attaching much affection to it because it was not important to me. And so it wasn't until I realized, like, whoa, this thing is really causing our marriage to <laughs> hit some hard times. Uh, let me go start buying some flowers. <laughs> let me go down to the store she likes. Yeah. And it wasn't cheap. <laughs> BT1 styles. All right? So now I had to start going to the places I didn't really want to shop. I had to go to the stores where I wasn't too happy going in because I knew I was putting a dent in my wallet if I did. <laughs> But if I wanted to keep my, my wife happy and let her know that she was loved, I had to learn that was the way she that love was communicated to her. Now I got mad at her, 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 her. I was like, who's the root? Of, what's the root of this? Like, who made her learn to love this way? And I had to meet her godparents and her uncles and everybody else who spoiled her with gifts. But I learned that that was how she learned how to receive love. And I had to adjust to give love the way she wanted it to be given. 
And this is when I learned something about love that I want every one of us to get before we end this series. You cannot love people based on your preference. <laughs> you cannot love based on your own preference. If you're going to love someone, the only way preference should come up is if you find out what their preference is. And you meet them where they are. You have to love people the way that they receive love. And it takes work to find that out. You see, like when I said love is the energy of the presence of God, the Bible says, for God so loved that he gave. Which means that if God was, you see, love is not lazy. If God was lazy, he would not have got off his throne. <laughs> we want everybody to come to us and we'll love them in our own comfort seats and comfort zones. But to truly love is going to require you to lay down your life, to lay down your preferences, to lay down your comfort zones and step out of yourself in order to love. That's why God says you got to lay down your life if you're going to follow him. If you're going to live like him, it's going to require you to constantly put your life down. It means that I'm going to put my life down. I'm not going to uh, come to people expecting them to adjust for me, but I'm going to learn how to adjust to people. Why? Because love is forgiving worth. To lay down my life means that I must know my life is worth much more. And I have to be able to see that I have value to give. Watch this. To love, not to no longer love by preference, it means that I have to be willing to let go of preference and exchange it with God's reference. What does that mean? Our five love languages that I mentioned, all those things, those things are still preference-based. It's still what I like. I like words of affirmation. You want to butter me up and make me feel happy? Use words. That's my love dominant. That's how I like to feel loved. <laughs> Thank you. For Shanique, it's gifts. Remember that. All right? But in the end, those are still just preferences. It's still arrows. It's still arrows. So our, the love language doesn't define my love. Even 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is all those things. You can still look at that chapter through arrows. You can be patient Long enough to get what you want. Right? A man that wants you, ladies, <laughs> he's going to do everything right. I mean, he's going to wait and wait. See, when you first meet a guy and he'll sit outside the mall waiting for you or go to the mall with you, go shopping with you, do everything. 
wait for you at the nail salon, wait in the car. I'll just wait outside. Go ahead. <laughs> Patient. <laughs> and then the next part is what kind? Love is kind. Patient and kind because he's waiting for an opportunity. So you can be patient and kind as long as you get what you want. But guess what I found out? The devil is kind until you figure him out. The devil will be patient, kind, romantic, give you quality time, affection, uh, 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 gifts, and surprises. <laughs> Checks in the mail. <laughs> cash in the cash app. Flowers in the mail, whatever. Edible arrangements in the mail. Everything. Yeah, you can do all of that until you get what you want. Right? So you can even see 1 Corinthians 13 through arrows. So guess what I learned? We, we don't even get our definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13. We don't understand love just by looking at that. We understand love by looking at Jesus. Jesus is God's love language. <laughs> I said Jesus is God's love language. Everything points back to him. You got to love like Jesus. You got to see people like Jesus. And that's why when we understand what the cross represented, the cross gives us the best picture of love. Laying down your life. Giving up your life. So 1 John 4, John said what? He said, we know his love. We know his love by what he did for us at the cross. We know his love by how he died for us. Okay? So here's the deal. If I'm going to love the way God wants me to love, I get my reference from him. Now, this is where we got to redefine what the cross means because most people think picking up the cross just, just talks about sacrifice. But although it does point to sacrifice, before it was sacrifice, it was something else. Here's why. Because when we love people, we got to realize the motivation of God. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were without strength, when we hadn't, did not have the ability to love him, he loved us. He gave his life for us. So what does that mean? He laid down his life because he thought that we were worth dying for. He didn't die for us to get something back from us. He gave up his life because he thought we were worth it. You. Yes, you. This is, this is, this is, where it all begins, church. 
See, the Bible says where your treasure is, your heart is. Where your heart is, your treasure is. You won't have a heart to love people if you don't see that there's treasure in people. If you don't think there's anything valuable in people, you won't love them. How you treat people and how you, is dependent on how you see people. I'll say that again for, the, for them in the back. How you see people determines how you treat people. So what the enemy wants to do uh, uh, is cause us to see people wrong so we can treat people wrong. But if I begin to see people the way God sees them, I will have no choice but to love and value and treat people the same way he does. What determines the worth of something? What determines the worth of something? Somebody said the value you put on it. Or the price someone is willing to pay for it. I want you to catch this. Because we think the cross was just about death. We think the cross was just an indictment to show how sinful we are. No. We sing that song. I'll never know how much it costs to see my what? Sins upon that cross. You'll never know. No, we know. That's what the cross was. The cross was to show you how much it cost. Him on that cross was the price he paid for you. It cost Jesus his life. That was the cost. But I want you to understand how powerful that is. Because if, if God went through that extent to die for you, it meant that you were worth that much to God. How many people, how many of you got anybody that died for you? Anybody died for you? We all do. Jesus. Well, <laughs> I wasn't talking about him right now. But physically, Paul said it best. He said, barely for a righteous man, somebody would die. But for a sinner? <laughs> and yet, the Bible says that God died, God sent Jesus to die for us. Why? Because he, God in his view, saw humanity and saw that there is something, <laughs> there is something about us that God sees that we are not seeing yet. There is something about the person sitting next to you that if you've seen them the way God sees you, you would die for them too. There is something profoundly. That's why David said, what is man that you are so mindful of us? If we seen people, see people the way God sees them, we will give up our life for just one. Say there is treasure in me. There is something valuable in me that I need to figure out. <laughs> You are worth dying for. Look at somebody next to you and say, I'm worth dying for. 
If you knew who I really was, if you knew who I really was, you would give up your life for me. See, I don't believe it. Everybody's saying, wow. <laughs> it's a wow moment right now. But what God, I believe God is doing is he's giving us vision so that we will start seeing what he sees. And as we see what he sees, we will learn to value and honor every person we come into contact with. And that's why we got to love by faith, not by preference. I said, see, Jesus is God's reference. He didn't die for some people. He didn't die for the Jews. He didn't die for the Gentiles. He died for you and me, every single person. There's not one human being Jesus didn't die for, is it? And so if Jesus died for every human being on this planet, then that means every single human being is worth dying for. That is the enormity of the depths and the width and the extent of God's love. And he does that because there is value in us. See, that's why the devil wants to put evolution in our school system. Because if I, I think people are just animals that evolved, and apes, and imbeciles, then guess what? I don't have much value on, on you. But if I see you as God's created image, God's created likeness, that John says, it's impossible for you to say you love God and hate your brother that you can see. Because this is God's, this is what God values, people. God values people more than he values anything else. Do you understand that? So as I close, this is what I want you to walk away with. Souls are more important to God than your goals. And you got to learn. Let me hit that preference thing once more. You have to learn how, see, this is what worship is. Worship is, I'm choosing to please God over pleasing myself. I want to please God. And I please God by knowing what God is pleased by. I please God knowing what God values. And I honor that. And I honor that above what I want. I honor that over my preference. above my biases, above my judgments, above what I think. It doesn't matter what that person looks like. It doesn't matter what they smell like. It doesn't matter what they dress like. That person is somebody Jesus died for. If you see people that way, it's impossible for you to treat people the same way. You see that? And you learn to lay down your life because there's treasure there. And if nobody sees it, God wants me to see it. And he wants me to draw it out. Gold does not become gold once it's discovered. It's always been gold. It becomes currency after you find it. <laughs> you see, we're not... In God's eyes... 
you have never lost your worth at all. You're just, imagine you before the fall. That's how God sees you. God sees you before Adam sinned. He sees you the way he originally intended. The Bible says that we were alienated in our minds from him. The way we saw ourselves changed after our eyes were opened. We no longer saw life and saw people the way God originally intended for us. So my, my, this is what we need to do. God says, I am calling you to shift from eros thinking to agape thinking. Love the way I love. And the only way you can love the way I love is by laying down your life. And by choosing, number one, to see people the way I see them because the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, you're going to walk according to your sight and what you see. If I had time, I was going to show you this illustration with a magnifying glass. But it's real simple. Everybody knows what a magnifying glass looks like, right? You see something like this. I'm not going to do the whole thing. But it's a, uh, well, this is real small. This is a magnifying lens, right? It's a magnifying glass. And what's the purpose of a magnifier? Not to make something bigger. To, to appear, to make something appear bigger. Right? When, we, when the Bible says magnify the Lord and mag magnify God, we're not making God bigger. Our view of him is getting bigger. Now, how do I magnify God? Am I holding up something to see and Like, you know, what are we doing? No, it lets us know every one of us has a built-in magnifying lens. Your heart has a built-in magnifier. You can magnify anything that you see. You make something bigger by choice. I choose to see. I choose to see what I want to see. And whatever I see consistently, I'm beginning to magnify. Where I set my lens, where I set my gaze, I begin to magnify it. Fear gets magnified when you start looking at the very thing you're afraid of. When you start thinking about your problems over and over again and you're meditating on it, you're magnifying it. What's my point? You, you, if you look at people and you choose to see what's wrong with them, that's what's going to get magnified. You cannot love people and magnify their problems at the same time. You cannot keep talking about people's issues and people's faults and people's shortcomings if you're going to expect to grow in love. You got to take that magnifier lens inside of you and choose to focus on what's right with people. You have to see many of you have well, what's right. You have to begin to renew your mind based on what God sees. Number one, what does God see about every human being? They are worth Whatever you behold, you become. What, what I see from is what I'm going to behold.
We think that we behold whatever we be, whatever we be, behold we're going to become, but you got to realize that you have the power to choose what you want to behold so you can become what you want to become. If I don't look through love, I won't become love. If I don't see through this lens of love, if I want to see what's wrong with everybody, I'm never going to be able to love everybody. That's easy. Loving is very easy. It's not hard at all. It's hard because we want to love based on our preference. But we're supposed to love based on God's reference. God's reference is Jesus. Amen? I want you to look at somebody. Find somebody next to you. Look at them and hold their hand if you can. Hold their hand. Hold their hand. As you're holding the hand of that person next to you, I want you to close your eyes. That person, that the hand that you're holding is somebody that Jesus loved so much that he gave his life for them. Now your eyes closed. That means you can't see who you're, who you're holding. Imagine if we couldn't see the person that we're holding hands with and we didn't know what they looked like. Would it matter what they looked like if all I knew was that anybody that I come into contact with is a person that God died for? If, the, if I didn't know that what this proof this person is, would their features matter? Would their skin color matter? Would how they dress matter? It wouldn't. And what God says is we no longer judge people according to the flesh. We have to learn how to just simply love. I learned this really quickly. God showed me this. He said the reason why some of you still can't find true love is because you're trying to love from your preference. the most significant relationships, friendships that you're ever going to encounter are going to be from people you probably would not have chosen to connect with. I'm telling you. You've got to be spirit-led. You've got to be led by your spirit, not your flesh, not your eyes. You have to learn how to just allow God to lead you and as you pray and say, God, lead me, God, God, guide me, God, direct me, know that God isn't always going to lead people into your life according to your preferences. So as you're holding that person's hand, I want you to just realize that this is someone worth dying for. And that you should never forget that. I'm going to keep saying it. People are to die for. That was the eternal quotient, the eternal decision of Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And your job from now on, it's not only learn how loved you are, but it's to give that love to everyone you meet. Show the world how loved they are. Show them. Teach them it model it love is forgiving love is forgiving 
Father, I thank you now that this baptism of love that's coming into our lives, I believe that it is, it is, it is, the, it is raising the prophetic barometer of our church. That, Father, we are going to learn how to discover the treasure in people. While everybody is fault-finding and everybody is criticizing, we're going to choose to see the best. We're going to choose to see the what's good. We're going to choose to see the potential. We're going to choose to see what's right. And we're going to call it out. We're going to draw it out. We're like treasure hunters in the spirit. We're going to bring that value to the surface until people know love for themselves. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are giving us the grace to love like we've never loved before. That that perfect love is going to become our perfect vision. And as we walk this way, we will walk perfectly as you. Love is perfection. And I thank you, God, for giving us this grace today to love supernaturally. Yeah. To love beyond our wants. To love beyond our preferences. To love beyond our own ambitions and our own desires. We're going to love. Yeah. And I even hear the Lord saying that, yes, my Shotaya. I heard the Lord say he's birthing marriages and ministries through this love. Some of you are wondering why you couldn't find the one. It's because you were trying to do it out of your preference. But the one I'm going to send may not match like what you had on your list. He said, trust me. When I say love, trust me. I'm not going to love based on what I want. So the Lord says, I'm, birth, I'm preparing you for marriage and I'm preparing you for your ministry because your ministry is going to go outside of your preferences too. You're not just going to minister to the people you like. You're not just going to minister to the people that you prefer, but you're going to minister the, the broken. You're going to minister the people that no one else is going to want to deal with. God says, I'm going to send them to you, hungry for God. Are you ready? The people who were kicked out of other churches, I'm going to send them here. Are you ready, hungry for God, to love the unloved? To show mercy to those who others have turned their backs on? Will you show love the way I would? This is the next level. <laughs> this concludes another life-changing teaching from Hungry for God Church. For social media updates and more teachings from our pastors and leaders, please visit our site, h4gchurch.com.